This is The Guardian. Today, how a year of political crises pushed climate action off the agenda. From devastating floods in Pakistan, to extreme heat and drought in the UK, to Europe, warming at twice the global average. This year, like last year and the year before, it's been obvious the climate catastrophe isn't something that's looming. We're living it. Most scientists agree that an increase of just 0.4 more degrees will drastically change the world. And the world are dealing with record extreme heat. Storms have been causing deadly floods. You could have mass melting of ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. If we don't act immediately, scientists say the consequences will be catastrophic. 2022 was meant to be a year of progress where countries came up with new, deeper cuts to their carbon emissions to keep global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees or less by the end of the century. Progress that could have been cemented and celebrated at this year's COP summit, starting on Sunday in Egypt. Right now, every government in the world is off course. Every one of the 20 largest economies of the world that represent 80% of all the emissions are off target at this moment. Instead, according to Guardian Environment correspondent Fiona Harvey, it's been a year where progress unravelled. There's now uh, much greater difficulty in the path of countries that want to move forward on the climate crisis. There's also a lot less money uh, available. People are in the midst of a cost of living crisis. Everything's going up in price. So it just makes everything to do with the climate so much harder. We've seen record profits for fossil fuel companies, a global search for new sources of gas, and the world's two biggest polluters, the US and China, suspending climate negotiations. For many governments, COP27 has been pushed to the back burner. And Fiona says the hosts of last year's summit have been particularly distracted. The UK's behaviour over COP27 has been awful, really. So much effort went into hosting COP26, and it was a huge achievement. But the UK seems to have really allowed that momentum to, to dissipate and seems intent on not helping to push forward with COP27. So will 2022 be remembered as the year we took our eyes off the ball? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, COP27 and the year the world's focus on climate was dragged off course. (laughs) 
Fiona, it's been about a year since the world gathered in Glasgow for what was then called the world's most important climate summit ever. And there was so much focused energy around that event, with governments renewing their pledges to cut carbon emissions to try to keep temperature rises to just 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. And we also saw that dispute over the language in the final communique and the UK's then business and energy minister and the president of COP26, Alok Sharma, getting quite emotional. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded. Um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. But finally, an agreement was signed on to by every country. How would you summarise the feeling at the end of last year's COP summit about what had been achieved and what was still to be done? COP26 ended on a high, uh, despite the kerfuffles uh, at the end. The whole world came to Glasgow uh, and they made enormous progress uh, on the climate crisis because previously people had been focused on limiting temperatures to two degrees. Uh, That was in the, the Paris Agreement of 2015. But science since then has shown us that two degrees would be disastrous in terms of the impacts, the extreme weather, uh, the irreversible tipping points that we would pass through on the climate. Uh, And so it was much better to try and uh, keep the world safer by focusing on on limiting temperature rises to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So the progress that was made at COP26, which was hugely important, was to bring down that that temperature goal to 1.5 degrees. Everyone would focus on that. Everyone would bring forward plans uh, for cuts in emissions commensurate with that goal. Um, And that was achieved. But the thing is, uh, the, the agreement at Glasgow was fragile. Um, and it started to unravel uh, when the uh, terrible events of, of the last year started to unfold. And before we get to how it's unravelled, let's just set out the stakes here. Last week, the UN Environment Agency issued a report suggesting that there was no credible pathway to keeping temperature rises below 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. And they said that current plans, even if delivered in full, would lead to a rise in global heating of about 2.5 degrees. Could you tell us what the world would look like at that temperature increase, 2.5 degrees? The world would be unrecognisable if it was 2.5 degrees hotter. It doesn't seem like a great deal. When you're talking about differences in temperature of, you know, half a degree or, you know, even a degree, it seems like very little. If you were sitting in a room and the temperature changed by a degree or half a degree, you probably wouldn't notice. But when it comes to the global climate, these fractions of a degree make a huge difference. And we know that there are changes in the climate uh, called tipping points. And once you pass through these tipping points, uh, changes can become irreversible and rapidly the changes in the climate become catastrophic. Now, that means things like 
uh, the ice caps melting and glaciers melting around the world, uh, contributing to sea level rise. Uh, it also means uh, things like the permafrost melting in the Arctic can uh, release methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas, and that in turn leads to greater climate change. It becomes a sort of a, a vicious circle, a runaway effect. It has been a year of extreme weather. Devastating floods in Pakistan, drought in Somalia with millions threatened by famine and record-breaking heat in the UK and many other countries. We've seen extreme weather around the world this year. We've seen it accelerating in recent years and we've seen the devastation that that has caused. Well, that would be just the beginning, really, um, if the world was to 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 go to 2.5 degrees because at the moment uh, the world has warmed by about 1.1 to 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And so you can imagine the devastation that we would see um, at a 2.5 degree increase. And so it was averting that scenario that gave people so much energy coming out of COP26, this kind of glint of hope that countries were finally ready to do something to stop it. But what's happened over the past year that has led to what you've described as an unravelling? Well, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, really. Um, We had the uh, illegal and brutal invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin in February. The war in Ukraine has led to an energy and food crisis around the world. The crisis has been especially harsh on Europe, where gas prices have surged by nearly 30% in two days. This comes after Russia deepened supply cuts to the continent. The Russian state-backed energy giant Gazprom said that it would limit the flows through Nord Stream 1 to about 20% of its full capacity from today. Uh, the price of gas uh, rose to record levels um, and that has uh, had terrible effects uh, economically and also it raised food prices um, because Russia's a, a, a big food exporter, so is uh, uh, Ukraine uh, and also they're both uh, producers of fertiliser um, and also uh, other producers of fertiliser around the world are affected by the high energy prices. So you add all this together and you get uh, food crisis um, and that's threatening uh, vulnerable people all around the world. Climate change along with pressures caused by the conflict in Ukraine have left many nations vulnerable to food insecurity. In Zimbabwe maize production which is a key staple plummeted by 43% this year. The country is now seeking to import the crop as well as looking for alternative sources of wheat and fertiliser usually sourced from Russia and Ukraine. Globally, economies had already been battered by the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and so they were beginning to recover, and they've been hit by this. Uh, Some people are calling it a a poly crisis. Um, So really, we can see that, uh, you know, the the optimism uh, at COP26, it started to, to dissipate really in spring of this year when these crises hit. And how does a war in Ukraine, how does the resulting spike in energy prices, the food crisis, come to impact these climate negotiations that we're going to see beginning in Egypt on Sunday? Because when uh, countries are faced with rising fuel prices, um, they tend to try and find new sources of fuel. 
uh, you can't uh, switch to clean energy immediately. Um, it, you know, you've got to build the wind farms, you've got to install the solar panels and so on. So although, uh, you know, clean energy is now much cheaper, partly as a result of the uh, rising fossil fuel prices, um, we can't just switch off all of our gas-fired power stations, switch off all the gas heating in all our homes um, and move immediately to renewable energy. Countries have uh, sought new fossil fuels as a result of the the increasing gas prices. Some countries have turned to coal, uh, having moved away from coal, countries like Germany. Sitting on the edge of a giant coal mine, the village of Lutzerath in western Germany is a symbol of Europe's energy crisis. Germany, like other developed countries, is rapidly moving off of coal, the dirtiest of all fossil fuels. But the mine that sits next to this village is getting a new lease on life because of the war in Ukraine. Um, no, they say that's temporary, uh, but, you know, it, it, it has an impact on emissions. So what's happened is it's a sort of double-edged sword, the energy crisis, because on the one hand, um, there's more incentive for companies to seek out fossil fuels and, and put them on the market. Um, but also uh, it's shown governments what a dangerous thing it is to be dependent on fossil fuels, and so it's accelerated the move towards renewable energy. Fiona, it's striking to me that something like the war in Ukraine or rising inflation, which both feel like they're very separate to the climate crisis, actually end up playing into it, as if we're in this era where every crisis is in some way now part of the climate crisis. Can you tell me, how have the challenges of the past 12 months played into the COP process? How have they affected the way the countries approach it? At COP26... Countries agreed to return to the table this year with better nationally determined contributions, which just means their plans on cutting greenhouse gas emissions or, in the case of developing countries, curbing the future growth of their greenhouse gas emissions. Only 24 countries have so far submitted new NDCs, new national plans, uh, to the UN ahead of COP27. That's a lot fewer than, than was hoped for. The difficulty here is that some countries, some big countries, uh, took the view that their NDCs at Glasgow uh, were basically as good as they could get to for now. For instance, uh, the European Union um, had a a strong NDC um, and getting agreement on an NDC for all of its member states is is quite hard to do. So it was always a bit unlikely that they would come back with, with much of a different plan. But the problem is that some of the countries that didn't have very good NDCs, they haven't come back either. And countries like the the EU um, can't really put a great deal of pressure on these laggards at the moment because they're in a difficult position themselves. So the the US is uh, trying to produce more gas because there's there's such a big market for it. Uh, the EU uh, is trying to source more gas. They're trying to persuade countries around the world uh, to give them gas and to drill more to fill up the 
uh, supply uh, deficit that uh, has resulted from Russia turning off the taps on its gas. Today, 12 member states are already directly affected by partial or total cutoff of Russian gas. So it is obvious Putin continues to use energy as a weapon. And this is why the Commission is working on a European emergency plan. And in any case, um, you know, with these uh, crises going on around the world, um, no one talking about the climate crisis is getting much of a hearing uh, in a lot of foreign capitals. Um, And also we have the fact that countries are not really talking to each other. So, you know, people have fallen out uh, over the Ukraine war. You have these um, immense uh, geopolitical tensions, economic difficulties, uh, this return to fossil fuels, uh, countries facing all of these these crises at once. Um, And it's really hard for them to to focus on the climate crisis amidst that, even though of all these crises, the climate crisis is the most important. Okay, so that's the international picture, and it's not good. But I want to understand, closer to home, how has the UK approached this COP summit? Are they anywhere near as enthusiastic as they were for the Glasgow summit last year? The way the UK looks to countries around the world is somewhere between farce and tragedy. Because what we've seen is uh, the new Prime Minister of the UK, Rishi Sunak, saying he won't go to COP27. He's changed his mind again. Rishi Sunak has said he will, after all, go to the COP27 climate summit in Egypt, despite previously insisting he was busy focusing on the UK economy. Opposition MPs have accused him of a screeching U-turn. And as you said, Sunak has changed his mind again, but... Does all of the confusion, the back and forth around it, send the wrong message anyway? When you've just hosted a big uh, and successful COP, um, then you ought to want to to push forward, to take that momentum forward, to to build on that success. Um, But you can't do that if you're not there. Um, It was a terrible snub to Egypt, to the hosts, and to all countries around the world um, when Sunak said that he wouldn't go. And another snub is for the UK government to prevent King Charles from going. People around the world really respect and look up to King Charles on the climate crisis and on environmental uh, crises generally because he has been an, an advocate Uh, of environmental action for so long, for for 50 years and more. All the more reason to push for King Charles to attend, despite then Prime Minister Liz Truss reportedly asking him not to. I think it would be very powerful. I know that his being there would make a difference, sure, because he has credibility, because he's been a long-term leader. Um, And so for him to be shut up, Uh, by the government and not allowed to speak and engage on this, it looks really weird to people in other countries. Fiona, having set out this really difficult backdrop on which COP27 will be happening this year, let's talk about the summit itself. What's on the table? What are some of the priorities that the delegates will be discussing? 
Uh, COP27, because it's taking place in a developing country, in Africa, uh, what people are hoping is that uh, African countries uh, will uh, have more of a say, um, that some of their issues uh, will be brought to the fore. Um, For African countries, uh, the issue of adaptation is key. And that means uh, trying to make... Uh, infrastructure and communities more resilient to the impacts of extreme weather. That can be things like uh, building seawalls or growing uh, mangrove swamps. Poor countries were promised uh, way back in 2009 that by 2020 they would be receiving at least $100 billion a year to help them both to cut their greenhouse gas emissions and to cope with the impacts of extreme weather through adaptation. Now, that money has not materialised. We've seen close to to, uh, $100 come forward, but not enough yet. And what about countries that say they're already suffering very badly from the impact of climate change? Is there anything on the table for them? We need to deliver on the $100 a year. And, um, you know, I have said many times before, and I repeat again, that delivering on the 100 billion is absolutely a matter of trust. Another issue uh, that's related to climate finance is loss and damage. What loss and damage means is the sort of devastation caused by really extreme weather events that no amount of adaptation can prepare you for. So we're talking about things like uh, like hurricanes or typhoons or these uh, massive uh, floods like the ones that we've seen in Pakistan recently that have devastated the country and caused, you know, 30 to 40 billion worth of, of damage at least. In Pakistan, the government says floods across the country have now killed more than 1,300 people. Rescue efforts are continuing in parts of Sindh province. It's one of the worst affected areas. There's real pressure now to rebuild all of these buildings that have been lost. These are really extreme events that um, cause so much damage. Um, And there is no way uh, at the moment for countries to get back from them. It it takes years uh, for countries to recover, uh, if they ever do, from that kind of devastation. So, you know, if if a hurricane hits, um, then, uh, you know, it, it, it... not not only does it, it sweep away your, your houses and your buildings and so on, but it destroys health services and education and so on. It destroys the means by which people would be able to lift themselves out of poverty. So it causes this terrible uh, social damage as well as economic damage. What poor countries have been promised is that loss and damage will be properly addressed at COP27. Coming up, what's the best we can hope for from this year's summit in Egypt? Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. Fiona, 
Despite all the many crises in the world, despite the many obstacles in the way of this summit, COP27 will begin in Sharm el-Sheikh on Sunday. And at the end of it, there will be some attempt to reach an agreement. What do you think is the best case scenario, the best thing we can hope for from this summit, despite all of the problems around it? It would be good if COP27 uh, carries on without some major upset. You know, there's the potential for, uh, you know, for walkouts, uh, for uh, countries to have blazing riots, for for there to be no agreement at all, because the geopolitical pressures are so intense. So, you know, there, there's every possibility that we could come away from Sharm el-Sheikh uh, in a worse position even than we are in now. Um, so just to prevent that happening uh, will be an achievement by the Egyptian hosts. Uh, Don't forget that fossil fuel companies are looking on at all this um, and thinking about their own profits. And fossil fuel producers, countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, are really hoping that uh, COP27 does not succeed because, you know, they want to carry on selling their fossil fuels. What we can hope for is that countries do uh, make some firmer commitments on climate finance uh, and that we get a real discussion started on loss and damage uh, and that countries do start putting the flesh on the bones of their, uh, their plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions. And finally, for people who doubt that COP is the best forum to take the action we need, people like Greta Thunberg, who said recently she definitely won't be going, who called it an excuse for leaders to indulge in greenwashing. She also criticised Egypt's human rights record. We have to remember that Egypt is a nation which violates many of the basic human rights and they have political prisoners, um, etc. So uh, there are many layers to that. What do you say to them about this idea that COP isn't working and isn't worth it? Well, what else have you got? You know, there, there, there is nothing else. Uh, the, 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 the thing about the COP process is that it brings together every country in the world. And that means that the poorest countries, those who are most vulnerable to climate change, those who are suffering the most at the moment, come face to face in the same room with the richest countries who have caused the problem. And that doesn't happen anywhere else, where, where the poorest have, the, the, have as much say in the outcome as the richest. And so it's really important. It's developing countries, the poorest, most vulnerable countries, who have the moral authority at COPs. And this is the only place where they can bring that moral authority to bear. COPs are the only place where no one can hide. Uh, Countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia um, that really are climate laggards who really want to, uh, you you know, to just keep pumping out fossil fuels and be paid enormous prices for them. Um, They cannot hide at COPs. They attend to um, and they can be brought to book at COPs in a way that they can't anywhere else. So, yes, it's a it's a difficult process. Oh, it's a torturous process process. It really is. But it's the only one we've got. There really is no other way to bring every country on earth together 
to tackle this global problem. So we need COPs. COPs are not going to solve the climate crisis by themselves. But on the other hand, the climate crisis will not be solved without COPs either. Fiona, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was The Guardian's environment correspondent, Fiona Harvey, whose coverage of COP you can follow at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Homer Khalili. And we'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.